Would you open God's word to 2 Samuel chapter 6, reading from verse 1 to verse 23. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, from 1 to 23. As you open God's word there, uh, if you are visiting with us, uh, we're glad you are here. We are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, it's encouraging for me to hear uh, members throughout the week uh, either send me a text or tell me that they're looking forward how I will preach Sunday for the passage that's coming up. It tells me, first of all, that they have read the passage ahead of time. Uh, it tells me that they are interacting with a text and are wondering, sometimes it's one of those passages, wow, what will this be about? Or I have some ideas, but I wonder how it will be preached. It, uh, it's, so, it's such a joy for me to know that you as a congregation are interacting with a passage that will be preached even before Sunday happens. Um, and this week in particular, on this chapter, I've got more than one of those comments. Uh, so let's dig into God's Word and see what it says and see how the Lord wants to speak to us through this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 6 from 1 through 23. This is the Word of the Lord. David, again gathered all the chosen men of Israel... 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Peres Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with a sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of this word and the hearing this morning. Would you join me in prayer and asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word? Let's pray. Father, you have wonderful and amazing ways by which you have revealed yourself to us. To reveal to us the ways of your kingdom, the ways of your reign, Father, even this passage, complex and colorful as it is, uh, Lord, it is your revelation to us. We pray that you would help me preach it faithfully, and we ask that you would help us hear it. Uh, help us, Father, to hear what you would say to us, to each and every one of us, through a passage that seems so old and so different than our context. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in a way that Christ would be exalted in our hearts. Father, help us to honor Christ. Father, protect us from any responses of despising, any, despo any responses of, of staying far from Christ. Father, we pray that you would work powerfully through this word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This chapter, chapter 6, I wonder if you're surprised by it or eager to hear what it's about because of the terrible events that have happened with Uzzah. God killing uh, one of the sons of Abinadab. Or perhaps you're wondering, what will I say about David dancing before the Lord? Um, I wonder what surprises you about this passage. There's a number of elements going on uniquely in this text. But actually, the, the most unique event in this passage is the reality that the ark of God is moved to the newly established city of David. That's the most unique moment in this chapter. 
David wants to bring the ark of God to his city. I wonder if you saw that as one of the unique elements that surprised you in this text. Uh, this is a big goal that David has in this chapter. To bring the ark of God to the city that he has just established. Now that he's king over all of God's people. Why is this a priority for David? Why would David go through the trouble of, uh, of getting the troops, of getting the people to bring in the ark of God to his city? Well, because the ark of the Lord was the physical representation of the presence of the Lord. The ark of God was a physical representation of the presence of the Lord. And there was something special about God's presence through the ark. Uh, do you see it in verse 2? Notice how the, the ark of the Lord is described in verse 2, in the second half of verse 2. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Uh, the ark of God was this, this wooden box that was built according to the specifications that God had given uh, back through, through Moses. And uh, this ark had a cover on it. And on the top of this cover, there were two cherubim built on it. And God's presence was represented as sitting enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, it's not merely the presence of God that is represented by the ark, but God's royal presence. He sits enthroned on the cherubim. Listen how one Bible teacher put it helpfully. The cherubim appear in ancient art with some regularity, flanking the thrones of kings and deities. The combination of cherubim as throne guardians, chests as footstools, and statements in the Old Testament concerning Yahweh being enthroned on the cherubim supports the concept of the ark as representing the invisible throne of Yahweh. This is what the ark symbolized. Not merely God's presence, but God's presence reigning. God's presence enthroned on the cherubim. It's a symbol, the ark was a symbol of God's invisible throne. All you could see is a cherubim. But what we are supposed to see beyond the physical elements is the throne of God or God enthroned on the cherubims. Now, if this is what the ark symbolized, there's something odd about this picture. What's odd about this picture is who initiates bringing the ark of the Lord to the city of David. It's David. The newly minted king 
Why is that surprising? Does it surprise you that Israel's newly minted king wants a symbol of someone else's enthronement in his capital city? Does it surprise you that David, a newly appointed king, would want the symbol of someone else's enthronement in his newly established capital city? By the way, we have not seen the ark of the Lord since 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. Saul, Israel's first king, did not care about the ark of the Lord who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Saul never asked for it. Here is David as king, and he wants a symbol of the invisible throne of God to be in his capital city. This desire alone is a huge deal. By this act, David is telling us that his reign is actually about someone else's reign. That his kingdom is about someone else's throne. Now think about it. If you had been David, would you have done this? And yet David anticipates what the whole gospel message is about. Namely, to restore the reign of God over our lives. And David is making this move, not privately, not secretly, but very publicly. David got the whole army of Israel to go after this ark and bring it to Jerusalem. And this chapter tells a story of how and how that happened and what happened when God's royal presence is brought to the capital city. Sadly, there are some surprises. Sadly, the first attempt to bring the, the, the ark of God into the capital city failed miserably, failed tragically. There are actually in this chapter two attempts to bring this ark of God's royal presence to David's city. The whole structure of this chapter is divided around these two attempts to bring the ark of God of God's royal presence to Jerusalem. There are many similarities between these chapters, but there's some contrast as well. In both attempts, there's rejoicing. In both attempts, there's some tragic events happening. The difference is in the second attempt, David finally learns how the royal presence of God ought to come to the city. And what is the heart response when the, when, the, when the throne of God's presence, uh, when, the, when the symbol of God's royal presence is brought to the capital city. And the message this chapter, these two attempts communicate, is that God's royal presence reflects the values of his kingdom. God's royal presence reflects the values of, this, of his kingdom. And these two attempts communicate two particular values that we must uphold, that we must embrace and the first attempt communicates us and teaches us that God's royal presence must not be treated on our terms. 
God's royal presence must not be treated on our terms. In the second attempt, we'll see how God's royal presence calls for a humble and exuberant rejoicing. God's royal presence calls for a humble and exuberant rejoicing. Let's look at each, at each of these attempts to bring God's royal presence to the city of David. The first one, the attempt, the, the attempt that failed. God's royal presence must not be treated on our terms. The setup of bringing God's Ark of the Covenant was outstanding. David gathered all the military of Israel. And the text tells us how many. 30,000 soldiers David gathered together. This time, not for war. This time, it was to bring in the ark of the Lord of hosts. And it was not only the soldiers in active duty that were present that day for this assembly. We are told that lots of instrumentalists leading all the house of Israel in a worshipful celebration. I mean, you can feel the enthusiasm of a huge crowd, at least 30,000 men present. And beyond them, others as well. All of that commotion, all of that crowd to go to the house of Abinadab on a hill to bring out the ark of the Lord. And we are told that there was great celebration. You know, some of us used to go to uh, T4G, Together for the Gospel, a conference of 10,000 people. And, and hearing it, hearing being in that in that presence and hearing 10,000 people singing to the Lord. It was electrifying. Imagine 30,000 men voices along with other instrumentalists and the whole house of Israel gathered. I mean, it's electrifying. And the ark of God is taken out of Abinadab's house and brought, and the journey begins towards Jerusalem. And yet, despite all the great joy before the Lord that happened on that day, the events that day turned out very tragically. Because one of the sons of Abinadab, by the name of Uzzah, put out his hand and touched the ark of the Lord to prevent it from falling. And we don't know what was going on in Uzzah's mind. He probably wanted to protect the ark from falling to the ground and potentially breaking. He might have thought, so, so glad I'm close by. And we might have thought, so glad Uzzah was there to catch the ark. What would have happened? But God's response was very different than Uzzah's thoughts or our thoughts. God's response was that he immediately struck Uzzah down and killed him right there in front of the ark. Reading this unfolding of events might lead some of us to conclude, wow, God is harsh. Unfair. Perhaps even evil. Did this act of touching the ark deserve such a harsh penalty? Yet notice how the narrator presents what Uzzah did. Look at verse 7. 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of the Lord. The narrator tells us that what Uzzah did was not a good thing. Even if he may have thought it was, even if his natural instinct was to prevent a falling object from, from falling, the narrator describes Uzzah's act of touching the ark with his bare hands as an error, a big error, a deadly error. Now, some of you may be wondering, but what was his error? And was this error worthy of such a punishment? Did God have a bad temper day that day? Friends, not at all. God had given clear instructions about the ark of the Lord back in the book of, of Numbers chapter 4. God gave clear instructions even about the way the ark of the Lord was to be carried when the people of Israel moved from place to place. It was actually supposed to be carried on two long horizontal posts so that the actual ark could not be touched even by those carrying it. And God instructed that only the Levites were supposed and allowed to carry it, and actually not even any of the Levites, only a subcategory of the Levites, the sons of Kohath. And when they carried it, and when they carried the ark or other holy things, they were specifically and carefully instructed not to touch any of them. In Numbers 4, 15. Just listen, God explained why they must not touch them. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Is that clear? God had decreed in his law centuries earlier what happened if people mishandled the holy symbols of God's presence. They would die. If only Uzzah had read the book of Numbers, it may have saved his life. If only Abinadab would have read to Uzzah in family worship the book of Numbers, it may have saved Uzzah's life. Uzzah ignored or defied God's command, and it happened to him exactly as God said. Friends, this is one of the reasons why we must read God's Word. So we understand what God has decreed for us. And just because we act out of our natural instincts will not be a good enough excuse to shield ourselves from God's judgment. What's most surprising in this chapter or in this scenario is that this happened while the rejoicing and the celebrating was happening before the Lord. This is all happening in this amazingly large public celebration of 30,000 soldiers being gathered together, of singing and rejoicing. People were on spiritual highs that day. And yet, none of that protected Uzzah. None of that covered Uzzah from being killed that day. Spiritual highs, apart from God's word, is no guarantee that we are on the right track. 
Uzzah and his brother Ahio grew up with the ark of the Lord in their father's house for many years. Abinadab, their father, cared for the ark of God for many years in his own house. Did he not teach his kids about what God said about not touching the ark? The tragedy of caring for the ark and yet not teaching your kids about it. Did he fail to teach his kids that even touching would be a big deal? Or was Uzzah thinking, perhaps Abinadab did teach Uzzah, we don't know. Perhaps, perhaps Uzzah knew, but perhaps he was thinking that this time God would understand. Perhaps this time God would even appreciate that my hand is so close that I can protect the ark of God from falling down and breaking I love, I love the words of R.C. Sproul in his classic book entitled The Holiness of God. By the way, it's a kind of book you should not die before you read it. Like you should read it before you die. Like you should, you should really read that book. Uh, I want to commend you to read that book. Don't move from the city of Austin, from our church, before you read that book. That's a more helpful positive encouragement. Sorry, that was not in my notes. Listen to the words of R.C. Sproul in the book of the holiness of God about this example. Was Uzzah's an act of holy heroism? No. It was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. And he goes on to say, God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him, that which by its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together in travail, waiting for the day of redemption. Man, it was man's touch that was forbidden. Get a copy of the holiness of God and read it and get together with another Christian to discuss it. It will do your soul much spiritual good. Just thinking through that it was in the garden where Adam and Eve grasped the forbidden fruit, touched it and ate of it. Here is Uzzah disregarding that God said, you shall not touch the ark lest you die. And this is exactly what happens in the midst of this spiritual high coming down the hill from Abinadab's household. Oh, friends, serving God on our terms will not be accepted before God. Our worship of God must be on God's terms, not ours. There are people who are high spiritually and want 
spiritual things, to develop their own spiritual lives on their own terms based on what feels right to them. This is this, the tragic story of, of Yuza's death to teach us that our spiritual lives are only good if they conform with what God's Word revealed, not to conform with our own instincts. Friends, to our human eyes, this event is tragic, and it is. A man lost his life because his, his hands mishandled the ark of God. But this event is also righteous because God did what he said he would. And David's reaction to this tragic event is that he was angry. He was angry and afraid. Afraid of God. The text is not saying that David was angry against God. He was simply angry for what happened and for what God had done. Look at verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. It's the same verb of breaking out as happened in the previous chapter when God broke out against the Philistines. When in the previous chapter, God, uh, David said, God broke out against the Philistines like a breaking flood. It's the same verb, this time against Uzzah. Now let me ask you, would you go to a church service where the presence of God would do such things? Would you go to a church service where the presence of God would do such things? And some of you may say, well, I'm so glad that just happened in the Old Testament. Well, actually, it didn't. Such things happen in the New Testament as well. Remember Acts 5, Ananiah and Sapphira being killed by the Lord on the spot for lying? Do you remember what God says through the Apostle Paul, what happens when people mishandle the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11? What happens when people take the supper inappropriately? Verses 1 Corinthians 11, not 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The God of the New Testament is not different than the God of the Old Testament. It's the same God. It's the same holiness. Here David gets a great wake-up call that he cannot treat the royal presence of God superficially on his terms, on his own terms, and nor can we. But God is about to give David another lesson. Not only is God's presence something that needs to be taken carefully on God's terms, not ours. The other lesson that God gives David is that God's royal presence also brings blessing. Not just judgment, but blessing as well. Verse 11 of this story, And the ark of, God, of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. At the end of this event with Uzzah, David says, I, can't, I cannot get this God close to me. So he sends it to somebody else, to Obed-Edom. Uh, the narrator tells us that he was a Gittite. Why is that significant? 
Well, that means he was from the land of Gath. Gath. We've heard that place before. Gath was a hometown of Goliath. Gath was Philistine land. Bible interpreters debate if this was a, a clue that Obed-Edom was a Philistine or if he was really a Jew just living in Philistine land. It's unclear. If he was a Philistine from the town of Gath, it's not the first time the Ark of the Lord was taken to the Philistine places in these books. Remember what happened when the Philistines got the Ark of the Lord in 1 Samuel? God afflicted them with curses so powerful that they sent the Ark of the Lord back to Israel on a new cart. But this time, the effects of the Ark of the Lord in Obed-Edom's house were very different. God brought great blessings to a Philistine land. And if he was a Philistine... Wow, to the house of a Philistine. Now, if he was not a Philistine, if he was a Levite, a Jew, a Levite living in Gath, which is possible, we see that in other parts of Scripture, uh, there's still a great contrast here between what happened to Uzzah and what happened to Abedadom. One experienced death, the other experienced blessings. The ark of God may be a great threat to some who ignored what God said, but it is also a source of great blessing to others. Don't get a skewed picture of the ark of the presence of God, only one or the other. And this truth is the hinge that connects the two scenes together. It's actually the, the realization that the ark of, of God is a source of blessing is what causes David to rethink his plans and go back to Obed-Edom three months later and said, all right, Obed-Edom, I'd like this God to be close to me. Because God is not just a God who threatens with death. God is a God who, who promises blessings. It's the same mindset that we see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy when, when Moses promises the people of Israel, he says, here's God's word. Now be careful. If you rebel against it, all its curses will be against you and you will die and you will perish. But if you live by it, it will be your life, and its promises will be your blessings. So David gets the second part, that the ark of God's presence, royal presence, is not just a warning of threat of death if mishandled, but a promise of blessing if received rightly. So what, do, what does David do? He goes for a second attempt. If the first attempt to bring the ark of God failed... David now engages in the second attempt. And here we see something amazing. God's royal presence calls for a humble and exuberant rejoicing. When David understands and decides to, to give it a second attempt, notice what he does. Notice how he goes about bringing the ark. There's a few lessons he learned from the first failed attempt. First of all, there's no more cart carrying the ark there's only people who carry it how do we know it well because after the first six steps the people carrying the ark made 
David calls him to stop and sacrifice. Did you notice that? After making their first six steps, the whole procession is put on hold. And there is a serious consideration to the reality of their sinfulness. And thus, David brings animals to sacrifice him. In other words, David is recognizing his own and their own sinfulness and desires to have that sinfulness dealt with according to God's pattern to sacrifice somebody else's life for our sin. And then as the ark was brought into the city, having been already uh, dealt with the sin of the people and the sin of, of, of those there, David danced before the Lord. This act of dancing is David's way of showing extreme joy before the Lord. The emphasis of this verse is not merely the act of dancing, but that he did it before the Lord. And we're told David did it with all his might. This was the extreme expression of showing joy. And yet, this joy is also coupled with extreme humility. How do we see that? Well, it's in David's clothing that day. It's amazing that the narrator would tell us what was David's uh, wardrobe that day. Verse 14, and David was wearing a linen ephod. What's important about this description is that it, this was not royal garment. This was more like the basic garment, the simple garment. Nothing fancy about it. As a matter of fact, the first time we encounter the ephod clothing in the book of, books of First and Second Samuel was back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. When Hannah left little Samuel at the temple, the narrator told us what the little boy just recently dedicated to the Lord left in the temple, what he was wearing. He was wearing a linen ephod. He was serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And apparently his clothing was important. The priests at Nob would also be described when Saul killed them. The narrator told them that they were wearing linen ephod. Here is as Israel's king on the day the ark of the Lord is coming to his own city. And this king is not dressed in royal clothing but in simple, unappealing clothing of a linen ephod. Uh, we are told that this entire process was celebrated by Israel with loud rejoicing. In verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. There's dancing before the Lord. They're shouting and, and public celebration before the Lord. 
and there's simple clothing. Now, there's two kinds of rejoicing in this chapter. In the first episode, there was rejoicing as well. But we saw that the rejoicing of, of the first attempt was ignorant and presumptuous and are on their own terms. It led to tragedy. In the second episode, in the second attempt, we see the rejoicing that is sin-conscious and humble. It's a rejoicing that leads to dancing before the Lord, even though in the first attempt there was death and tragedy. You know, I'm not so much surprised that David danced before the Lord. What I'm surprised is that he danced before the Lord after three months earlier, Uzzah was killed before the Lord. That's a surprising moment. David gets something about the fact that what happened to Uzzah was the holiness of God manifested before the people of God when their sin was not dealt with. But now that sacrifices have been brought, David has the courage and David has the freedom to rejoice before the Lord in such extreme and exuberant ways that it leads him to a kind of dancing that was not appropriate for a king. It's the rejoicing and the dancing that royalty don't do. Imagine with me at the, uh, recently when King Charles was enthroned, put on the throne of England. Imagine if at his coronation and at the celebration of, of him becoming king, he showed up in sweatpants and a white t-shirt. And uh, instead of going properly as the protocol of royalty goes, he would just go off script and run around the procession and go wild <laughs> and even dance off script. I mean, anyone who had any sense of sane royal protocol would be embarrassed and ashamed and would think of such disgrace to the whole royal procession. As all Israel gets into the celebration of bringing the ark of the Lord in David's city, everybody rejoices except one person. Michael. She was not with the people. She was not among them. She was back home, watching this whole thing from a window. And she cannot comprehend what is just happening with this newly minted king to be misdressed for the occasion and to be misbehaving for what was considered appropriate for a king to do. So verse 16, we are told, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. We'll hear more about Michael at the end of the chapter, but for now, the author wants us to see that not 
everyone in Israel responded with rejoicing at the bringing of God's ark and at the king who humbled himself in his rejoicing. In verses 17 through 19, we see more sacrifices uh, that were brought to God by King David. And this is a secret of this successful attempt to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. It started and ended with sacrifices of animals as substitutes for our sin and expressing gratitude to God, so much so that it leads King David to this exuberant joy. David concluded the corporate celebration by blessing the people of Israel with his prayers and with food that each took home. Each of the Israelites gathered that day, went home from that occasion, blessed by the Lord. And David too went home to bless his home. But what he found at home was tragic. In verse 16, we have already seen that Michael despised David in, his, in her heart at the mere look of him. By the way, the same reaction, the same verb of despising that Michael had towards David was used when the narrator described Goliath's look and reaction to David when he saw him. And it's the same reaction that the sons of Eli had towards the Lord back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. How sad for Michael's heart to have the same heart disposition of despising as Goliath had towards David. And Michael's reactions receive full spotlight at the end of the chapter as this scene of the successful attempt to bring God's royal presence uh, comes to an end here. Sadly, it's a tragic response from Michael. In Michael's eyes, David's rejoicing, his clothing, his dancing was only to seek his own honor, and she considered it shameful. All that Michael could think of was the human audience, what people thought. And David's response to her is the, is the right correction. All David is thinking of is the divine audience. He didn't think or care who was looking and watching. He humbled himself, even in his clothing, because he was doing it all in the sight of God, before the Lord. And David responds to her in verse 21 and makes it very clear that his rejoicing was not only before the Lord, but he was seeking, he was seeking to humble himself intentionally. How do we know that? Because in verse 22, David says, this is just the beginning. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. Well, friends, three times in this chapter, Michael's daughter is presented not as David's wife, though she was, but as, da as Saul's daughter. It's as if the narrator wants to remind us that here Michael represents the thinking of his father's house. She could not understand that what David did 
that day was not seeking attention from people as his father, as her father was addicted to. David's eyes were centered on the presence of God. The royal presence of God was finally coming to his city. The symbol of someone else's throne was coming to his city, and he is laying low. He humbles himself. This is what drove David to humble himself in his dressing. This is what drove David to humble himself in his dancing. This is what drove David to commit to continue to rejoice before the Lord and to continue to walk humbly with the Lord, to be even more contemptible than this. In this moment, David provides a shadow of another king who will come from his household when his clothing will be taken away from him. When he will stand before the people almost naked before all the onlookers despised humiliated. This will be the view of the king who truly will usher in the royal presence of God. Despised. Some have chosen to embrace this king. Others chose to despise him and to reject him. And David, in this moment of what happens in this dialogue between him and Michael when he got home, is a foreshadowing of what will happen when the true Davidic king will come to his city. There will be different responses. Some will receive him and honor him. Others will despise him because they cannot accept the path of humility, the path of self-abasement, the path of, of despising, the path of shame. And Michael's, Michael's response represents those who could not embrace it. Michael's response, we see a person who has chosen to despise the king who has brought the symbol of God's royal presence to the people. But there's one more detail here about Michael that the narrator wants us to see. It's verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What a surprising detail. Why would a narrator tell us that? Well, in a book that started with a barren woman who sought God's favor and for whom God reversed her barrenness because he can, Michael stands in contrast to Hannah. She's the wife, she's the woman who though was the wife of the king that God promised, remained childless 
because she had rejected and despised the king who acted humbly before God. There is no blessing. There is no blessing of God for those who reject the king in his humility. There is no blessing for those who cannot join the king in his joyful humility before God. So why is it all, why is this story significant? Why is it important that we understand not only that David brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, but how he brought it? What's surprising in this text is not Uzzah's death or David's dancing. It's a fact that David brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem and how he did it. The first time it failed. The second time it succeeded. It was a statement that David subordinated his kingdom to God's invisible reign. It was God's presence and reign that mattered in David's kingdom. But what is God's presence like? It surprises us. It's a holy presence. It's a presence that cares about the word that God has said and wants that word to be upheld. While it's a threat to some, it's a blessing to others. It's a holy presence. But it's a joy-producing presence. A joy that when we take sin seriously, when we, when we deal with our sin, it's a joy that humbles ourselves before God. It's a joy that causes us to truly be exuberant beyond what people can explain. It will be inappropriate to some. And that's why it's a joy that others might reject and may cause, to, may cause despising. I mentioned that these two attempts to bring the ark include two tragic events. In the first one, Uzzah is a tragic event who ignored God's holy presence and died instantly. In the second attempt, Michael's response is tragic because she despised God's king rejoicing and humbling himself. What about you? What about you? God's royal presence reflects the values of his kingdom. David learned these lessons the hard way. God's presence must not be treated on our terms. And God's presence calls for humble and exuberant rejoicing. What about you? Let's pray. Father, you have given us in your Son, Jesus, someone who fulfilled all that the Ark of the Covenant foreshadowed. In Christ, you have given us your royal, kingly, and divine presence. He came to live among us, to be despised, to be crucified, to be rejected. But you raised him from the dead, and you exalted him at your right hand. And now Christ, who reigns to your right hand, 
is dwelling among us right here and right now through your Holy Spirit. Would you help us make much of Jesus? Would you help us make much of your kingdom values that Jesus came to usher in? Would you help us, your church, here in this place to be a community that reflects the values of your kingdom by the way we respond to your king? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.